Welcome to Fright Night. For real. Boils and ghouls, this is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, and this afternoon, I've got a special one for you. My guest this evening needs no introduction, though I will try my best. Screenwriter, actor, and director of films such as Fright Night, Child's Play, Psycho 2, and Stephen King's Thinner, the one, the only, the icon, Mr. Tom Holland. Tom, how the hell are you? Well, I'm here. That's good. That is certainly good to hear, sir. And like I said earlier, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time. So, Tom, take us back in time. When you were a youngster, what sort of films, fiction, books, etc. were you into that you would say got your creativity flowing? I would be a contemporary to Stephen King. When I was a youngster, like let's say what we called then junior high school and high school, there was horror wasn't really, it didn't exist or doesn't like it does now. EC comics were about the only thing available in terms of, of horror comics, and they were banned, I think, around 1956 or 57, and we passed them around like like they were, you know, uh, pornographic books. <laughs> I mean, it was, they, they, they banned them. It was uh, myself and a bunch of other boys. I don't remember any girls involved, and, you know, somebody would get hold of, of a copy or whatever, and, you know, you they'd whisper to you in high school and say, hey, I got. In, in one case, I remember that they we took them, or somebody did took them and put them in plastic to protect them and left them down down a hill behind the post office among the brush and they were passed around like that it was it was like a it was like horror was like a guilty pleasure and i i don't even know if there was such a thing as horror fans and if they were they were all sort of treated like evil ed you know you were you were very very strange if you were into horror and the the novels were like the classics like bram stoker they were the cloud bram stoker's dracula but they were the classics like from the late victorian literature and I can't remember, but like written in the late 1800s, very early 1900s. And then the names of the, of the, there are three or four which are very famous, which I think Stephen writes about as influencing him. I don't, I can't remember the names of the titles anymore. And then, of course, there was uh, Rhode Island. There was the American. Give me a, give me a, 
what name university? Give me the give me help me out, Justin. The the the, the horror writer in Rhode Island. Oh, you're talking about H.P. Lovecraft. That's right, Lovecraft. Where they broke it open. He was he only became famous after he after he passed away. And I did get the tail end of that. I mean, it maybe be around 1960. My memory is that everything changed. You had AIP and you had Hammer films. Mm-hmm. That came in in my memory in the 50s, but late 50s. And they continued on through into the 60s. But they really weren't horror. They were they 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 reflected the Victorian novels. They were heavily saturated, which means very, very deep and bright colors. And they had magnificent stages. I think they all shot them in the same Victorian house. And they were, you know, they were Christopher Lee doing Dracula. And they were, they were great fun and all that. Then you had AIP start to imitate them for the money rush. Corman, the Red Plague, the the post stories that were done, the right. you know the oh I think it was one of Jack Nicholson's first jobs too in the Raven. The uh, but I got those. But what really really changed it was Psycho, and that was 1961, I think, and that was the birth of modern horror as we know it today. I think everything stands on that. That was the in a way it was the first flasher, but that really opened up movies, and 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 then you started to follow it up you'd, you'd, you'd see it echoed in like men's magazines you'd read in the barber shop like cavalier and i think that that's where Stephen got his his early start strawberry spring is one of those stories you know six seven page six seven eight pages that Stephen wrote it was it was all there in terms of film though psycho 2 would be the start and then carpenter really commercialized it with halloween when was halloween 1970 and then yet then you had before that you had you had Stephen's Stephen breakout carrie did not break out as a novel but the movie the brian de palma movie that broke out and that was i think 1973 so really what you're looking at is you're looking at a a stirring in the middle to late 50s for people kids like me and steven and then it really started changing film with with the huge success of psycho which was a a major step up in terms of the visual horror what that did nobody had ever seen anything like that before and that changed hammer too hammer went with a whole series of after the success of horror they went into psychological horror with jimmy sangster writing s-a-n-g-s-t-e-r paranoia was one of the titles but maybe there are five or six but you can if success success get copied and you had Stephen coming along writing in in the men's magazine short stories when i think that was in the late 60s and then he then he came through and and broke out in film with with carrie but the novel that that really changed horror in terms of of literature was the stand and the stand would be what 1977 that was a major mainstream novel and it was a doorstopper of a novel it was that long you know i mean god knows how many words that was 150 175,000 words that elevated horror into being a major literary success for the broad public and he uh, what steven did was he took brand names like cheetos and uh i don't know clorox and he put things like that in the, in the novels and he made it relatable or real to the reading audience during the 70s by the late 70s i was in my 30s so i was just experiencing all of this i mean i don't know i i remember 
just reading everything that Stephen wrote, just, you know, absolutely fascinated. To give the devil his due, what Stephen has also, among the many qualities, is there's, when he's really on and really good, there's a hypnotic quality to his writing. You know, one chapter leads to another. There's a real sense of narrative flowing. And the stand was that, but it also, it also took, moved horror into the great middle class, mass market novels. So you're, you're looking at this huge explosion of the horror genre and therefore the growth in fandom. And then at some point it went from boys to girls. There was a period in the 70s where boys took girls to see horror movies because it was a way of getting them to cuddle up, cuddle up next to you, you know, and, and maybe grab and squeeze them a little bit and, and, you know, get a few giggles going. But it became a big date night movie. And then somehow it moved into a growing fandom for females, you know, and now, now it's going multi-generational. I know that because I don't go out to conventions very much, and I certainly haven't for a couple of years. But, you know, when I was, my, my line is, if I can drive, I'll go, but if I have to fly, forget it. But when I've gone out, when I've gone out the last... Oh, a long time now, four or five years. My movies have become multi-generational. I would have people, fans come up to me and it would be grandfather, his children and grandchildren coming yeah. up as a group. So so at least movies like Fright Night and Child's Play certainly is that. But there's also, I did Psycho 2. I wrote it. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you where, I'll tell you that's 1982, the summer of 1982. The Psycho 2 was the biggest the second biggest movie in the summer of 1982 behind the first sequel to Star Wars, which tells you how, how hugely lucrative and, and important it was to the culture. And that opened up the entire psycho legacy, which has now been with us ever since 1982. I mean, they you know they had that hugely, they had a terrific series that, that, that was a success, but they've never stopped doing psycho now, eight, nine, ten, for almost 40 years, four, eight, nine, yeah, 40, 41, uh, 39 years they've been doing Psycho now. But when, when we did the, when I did the the original Psycho 2, the first sequel, that was a cable movie. And in 1982, cable was just coming in. And if you look on the credits, you'll see that one of the producers is called Oak Communications, which was a cable network just coming in in San Diego, California. In other words, Universal didn't think that Psycho was worth any more than being a a cable movie or a TV movie. They expected nothing from it. And the, the title did not have enough worth, they thought, to be released as a feature film. And this is all having to do with the growth of, of the horror genre over... I've been, to, I've been into it more than 40 years. The, the first one was... I did a, a TV movie called Initiation of Sarah. That was 1977. That was a huge success on TV. And then I did The Beast Within, which would be 79 or 80. So I've got 40 years of being produced in the genre. And before that, I have the 70s when I was trying to get in and get started. I've got damn near 50 years watching the genre grow and change. And it's, it's been like amazing. And now it's, it's the most consistently remunerative in movies of any genre because they can produce them cheaply or so they think. You know, at the same time, it's, it's a huge literary business. I am, by the way, writing the first sequel to Fright Night. And it's called Fright Night 2 
aftermath, and I'm probably three or four weeks away from finishing it. I finished it. I'm at 47,000 words, and I am now filling in the research on things like casting the runes and witchery and vampires. So I'm now crawling the internet, uh, finding out what the <laughs> truth of grimoires is and that kind of thing. But I think that, you know, I'll be looking for a release on that, you know, within a month. So I'd like to get that out to the audience so we'll start looking at it. When I had, that's an original screenplay, Fright Night. And when I, when I put together the movie deal on it, I withheld the literary and dramatic rights. So I have the and nobody can mess with it. It's a way of, of, of doing it the way I want to do it. It's been a huge amount of fun. Just listening to you talk, Tom, it's obvious that you're a fan of Stephen King. So I'll just ask you, what is your favorite Stephen King adaption? Oh, boy. Well, I have so many friends, all of them. Well, I just finished doing, I just finished appearing in a documentary from some very, very nice Spanish kids, really, you know. The, you know, they're college graduates, you know, but they're not. I would say they're in their 30s. But they interviewed 25 directors who had directed the Stephen King's work. I love them all. Let me put it that way. God, I, I mean, there's so many of them that I think are really great. And some not so great, but the people who did them are still friends. So I love them all. Thinner was a, was a lot of fun to do and a lot of work. Langoliers which I thought was absolutely terrific, but now is dated because that was just at the moment the CGI was coming in and the CGI, the Lango, Langoliers themselves look rather primitive now. But if you look at the structure of that and the acting and what the ensemble cast did, I think that's excellent. In terms of TV movies, I thought Storm of the Century, but I think Stephen wrote as an original was excellent. And Baxter, was that the, was that the name of the director? He did a hell of a job. I think that was his last name. There have been so much what Mary did with, with the first pet cemetery mm. with the Palmas I mean listen if you if you hadn't had a huge success with the Palmas Carry in 1973 you might not Stephen would not be as important as he is now but there have been a lot of others too that have that have just done great work I like David J. Scow there are three or four modern guys anything by Matheson by Richard Matheson you know there, there's 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 been a lot of talent but the I don't know if you call call a lot of it horror because it horror is basically suspense with blood but it also is fantasy and it's science fiction i mean you can see it in the in the genres that, that horror is going in you have you have outer space horror you know i was trying to think the other day about what are the scariest horror movies that i've seen and you know psycho would be the first i would say the exorcist number two and i think maybe number three alien you know alien is the most common answer i get from guests on the show Oh, you did do? Mm -hmm. Oh well, I th but but it, Exorcist, Exorcist Man was a mind blower. I mean that, and that's that's the first time you saw a real horror makeup with Dick Smith's makeup that jumped it. But then you know you you look at what uh, Landis's American Werewolf and that transformation in that. Oh yeah. This is all in camera work. That was a, a big step forward. Fright Night was a huge step forward in, in in you know in terms of what they did in camera with horror makeup and with horror transformations. Of course. You. If you really study this stuff, you you can see a, a growth, you know, through the time. And now, of course, you're into heavy CGI, and you got something else going on. You got the LED panels on Unreal Engine. If you know about that, that's cutting edge. So, I mean, it, it keeps growing technically what they can do. And we can argue whether it's a plus or a, or a minus, <laughs> but... <laughs> Now, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, Tom, but you started your career as an actor. So how did you get your first job as an actor in the business? 
as an actor. I got in as a the summer of my 16th birthday into Bucks County Playhouse in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And that was where I was working for free and really working hard and, you know, doing strike nights, which where you take down the set and you put up the new one. When you, where you go like almost 36 hours without sleep, you had to be 16 to do it. Cleaning out the restrooms, never, never pleasant, especially after matinees. You know, but I mean, but I, that's where I learned about the uh, first time I saw plays directed, put on their feet, where I met actors, where, where I learned about, about the theatrical side of the business. Bucks County was a was and is a, a play a playhouse that was like a pre-Broadway run. You'd, you'd try plays there before you took them to New York. I mean, they had them in, I can't remember where now, New Canaan, Connecticut. There, there were others. There was, there was a circuit 10 or 12 playhouses that you, you automatically went through as you sharpened up the play before you went on Broadway. And so that, what I learned from that was acting teachers in New York City. And so I then I, I think the following summer, I had a job working as a clerk in a men's store, and I would take the New York Central in to New York City on Saturday afternoons. And I went to, I studied at something called the HB Studios on Bank Street, which was Herbert Berghoff and his wife, Uta Hagen. And then once I went to acting class, I started to learn about agents and things. And then by by some stroke of luck, you know, you learn, you know, where did, where did everybody go to college? You know, what are the best theater schools? And so I ended up applying to Northwestern and Carnegie Tech at the time. And Northwestern at least had some academics and Carnegie was strictly a uh, you know a, a, a school to teach the craft of, of theater but I was never that interested in theater I was interested in film but I, I mean I'm, I'm from a small town in mid-state New York and nobody in the business you know and I didn't know any Highland New York across across the Hudson River from Poughkeepsie and I had no way in so it was a teacher who, who, who introduced me to, uh, to Bucks County. So I was very, very lucky there, but that was the only in that I had. And that was because he had an acting class and I would get up and declaim Shakespeare terribly, I'm sure. But my interest was enough that, that, that he said that he introduced me to the guy who was running Bucks County as a possible, uh, an apprentice. The, but I, but so I learned, so I started going to acting classes and then I applied and I, I got, I went to Northwestern, which, which turns out to be a terrific, ter- it was a terrific college. College. That's that's outside of Chicago. I stayed there a year, and I still wasn't interested in theater. But that that that's every but was, was the only. They didn't have any film schools at the time, if that makes any sense. I, I did my first film, sixteen mil, Northwestern University, with what they called short ends, which were you know unused on the ends of, of 60 mil reels and I, I can't remember where the hell we got them from and I uh, there was one room was the film school at Northwestern then and when they had like one 60 mil camera and a couple of cold splicers and we went out and we, we we made a film which was really me driving a motorcycle off the road accidentally and down a hill down a down a gully <laughs> and struggling to get it back up but it you know there, there was you know I learned a little bit about shooting film and cutting and you know and, and angles and got, I got the basic idea of montage hmm. and then that summer the first summer after my freshman year I got an agent in New York City and I got a seven-year contract to Warner Brothers so hmm. at 18 years old or 19 I was under contract to Warners in Burbank California and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven you know I mean 
but it, but it, but that again, that was I'll tell you, I was I was there living in a motel when JFK was assassinated. So that was 1963, and I was 18 or 19. I can't remember. Well, that was also the end of the end of sort of the classical period and the big studios were still around but they were falling apart under the onslaught of television the movie theaters and the movie houses were falling apart literally Hollywood was losing its way and so the contract I, I, they dropped me from contract because they didn't have contract players anymore they weren't producing enough product before that they had turned into television studios I did the I guest starred in the last season of uh, 77 Sunset Strip and Temple Houston and I can't remember what else. The stages to My Fair Lady were still standing. The Ascot races on the largest soundstage at Warner Brothers. And they had the stage to Camelot outside. That was still standing. So I, I wandered around like a starstruck <laughs> kid, which is what I was. But I was I was learning the entire time. You know, I haunted the editing rooms until they threw me out. I, you know, I, I asked questions. I, I learned something about post-production. I was in the, the first post-production house I ever saw, which was in-house at Warner Brothers. I was signed by Jack Warner himself. I got a sense of... They were shooting Robin Hood in the Seven Robin in the Seven Hoods, starring uh, Frank Sinatra in the Rat Pack, and I would stand at that at the back in the darkness, and I would watch that. I was watching Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis, and wow. Frank Sinatra flew in in a helicopter from uh, Palm Springs. I'd never seen anything like that. When he was finished with the work at the end of the day, took the helicopter back to Palm Springs for a kid from a small farm town in Midstate New York. It was it was it was really heady stuff. I just kept learning. What I did is I, I was interested in film and not theater. I, I did theater. I did summer stock, all of that. But I was really interested in film. And I, I it wasn't that I, I wanted to be an actor either. That wasn't part of it either. That was the only way in to get my way in. Mm-hmm. It was also a way to meet girls, let's be honest. <laughs> but, you know, but it wasn't like it wasn't like a mad passion. But I didn't know... I guess I wanted to direct, but that was that seemed like such a, a huge thing, you know, that it was that it was impossible to even conceive. But I did want to learn and I wanted to be around it. I worked. I was in the actor's studio, late sixties till about nineteen seventy-one, I guess I went Lee Strasberg was teaching. I'm talking about out here in LA. And they had a uh, a writer's union, a writer's unit, and the actors, including me, would get up and be the actors for these writers in their one act play which they'd put on and uh, I started to meet all these aspiring writers Jim Bridges was among them Jim Bridges was he directed he'd written the Appaloosa he wrote the Forbin project I think it was called and he went on to become a director successful director with oh god Three Mile Island and Paper Chase but anyway what I started to see was number one what happened was I'd be directed by these people in these plays and I would say to my head no you don't want to block it like that because the dramatic moment is here. I started to have disagreements with the with the directors about how to how to make scenes work dramatically. That made me aware that if I wanted to get them the way I wanted to, I better start thinking about directing. And I was with enough of them at that moment to realize that the way in at that moment in time was writing original scripts. This was a moment in time when Hollywood was lost. You had an, had an older group of people 
people that had come out of the classical period of Hollywood and studio movies. And then you had the enormous success of Easy Rider in 1968. And they started to look for new and original talent with the hippies and the love generation and all that. And it opened the door to new people, to new thinking about, about how to do it. And so I started writing original screenplays and starving to death. <laughs> and I, I kept going because I was working commercials. I was working either in front of or behind the camera. Whatever, whatever way to, I mean, I, I could make 100, 125, 150 bucks a day working as a grip or an electrician or a location scout or an AD. And that was huge money then. It's, it's not, it's not bad now. It's not great now, but that's how I kept going. And I kept writing. It was really, really tough. The, the, the 70s were a starving time. And it was also a very difficult time economically in the country. You had inflation, you had interest rates climbing to like 18 to 20%. No way you could buy a house, uh, pay whatever they were paying wasn't enough to keep up with inflation. Go, you, I'd go buy instant coffee and I'd go to buy it at the grocery store a week later and it was three, three cents more. Same thing with sugar, believe it or not. So, but then, then I started to sell as a writer. So when I started to sell as a writer, I became a hot writer and then I could leverage myself into directing and that was Fright Night. That's the story of my, of my creative life, I guess. <laughs> now, Tom, prior to starting to write scripts and ultimately selling movies, like Fright Night, had you been writing your entire life? Were you always writing fiction? Was it something you'd been interested in? Uh, yeah, since I was about 13. Badly. But I was writing. I've always wanted to be a writer. And I uh, kept trying to write short stories. I, I could I could write short stories, actually. But I couldn't pull off a novel. And so, in despair, I started writing screenplays, which are, you have to write a lot less. It's not that they're any less complicated or difficult, but you don't have to spend so much time and you don't have to write so many words also because I'd had that background I had a, a very good idea about how to write screenplays visualizing them. Tom Fright Night is one of the classic vampire films of our generation and it was your directorial debut so looking back on those days now we're coming up on the 35th anniversary of the film in hindsight what do you attribute that magic to what made Fright Night so special in your eyes? Well, I, that was me. I mean, Charlie Brewster was me. I was writing a movie called Cloak and Dagger. Which I'm very fond of, as a matter of fact. Richard Franklin directed it. Same guy who directed Psycho 2. And that, that starred Dabney Coleman and the boy from uh, E.T. It was, supposedly it was a remake of The Window. The Window was the juvenile version by Cornell Woolrich of his novel, Rear Window. Okay, this is the boy who cried wolf. Kid looks out the window and sees a murder next door. Does that sound familiar? But it wasn't, it was It was too cliched to do that way. You couldn't just do that. I mean, they did turn around, they did it with the movie, what, Suburbia? Something like that about four or five years ago. Did a, They did a ripoff of Rear Window that was spot on. I think David Morris played the bad guy who was also in Langoliers. Excellent actor, brilliant actor. What I did was I said, you know, you can't, you just can't do that anymore. It's, it's too familiar. And so I created an imaginary character for, 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 the, for the boy Davey to be friends with, Jack Flack, playing up from, from, from a role-playing game. The movie was not a success in its theatrical, but it became a huge success on cable in terms of, of, of going. It went like 20 years. I don't think, I don't know how much they rotate it now. But boy, in the 90s and, and the early 2000s, you couldn't escape it. 
so it has it has a very very large fan base out there anyway when i was doing that i said if you really want to write something and bring it up into our time with a kid looking out the window and seeing something happening in the house next door you should make him a gonzo horror fan and he should look out the window and see a vampire chomping down welcome to the night you think you know night demon then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts. And the director thought I was nuts. And Universal almost threw me out of the studio. The idea was so ridiculous. After Cloak and Dagger, and then I had a script called Scream for Help, which the director, I was, I thought it was a much better script than what the director gave me. Director Michael Winner, who's a charming man, but more into action movies than suspense. I said, well, I can't do any worse and I've always wanted to direct. So if you wanted, if you want to have Fright Night, you know, I'm directing it. And at that point, I was a very, very hot screenwriter. I remember remember that MGM didn't want me to direct but offered me X number of hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy the script without me directing it. And I said no. And then I was very, very lucky to get the go-ahead from Columbia and, and Guy McElwain, who was the head of Columbia at that moment. They had a spot in their distribution schedule and Fright Night was the throwaway. Fright Night was the movie they was, was the cheapest movie they could make. They didn't expect anything out of it. And they thought, well, maybe I was so I'd, I'd been so successful with Psycho 2 and you know some other stuff that maybe I'd maybe maybe something would happen with with Fright Night. I don't think anybody particularly believed in the script. I remember that the head of production, a very nice man called Shell Schrager, who's no longer with us, told me afterwards that he thought it was too simple and nothing would ever happen to it. Shell Schrager gave me Richard Edland as the as the head of uh, of effects and Richard Edlin and his crew at that moment in time were the best special effects group in Hollywood they had done Ghostbusters and which was enormously successful and Columbia was trying to hold on to them by keeping them employed so they gave them Fright Night as a way to keep them available for a sequel to Ghostbusters which I which they did get around to doing but so I ended up having having the most talented group of people doing the effects on Fright Night that were available in Hollywood at that moment. That includes Steve Johnson and Randy Cook, great sculptors. You know, and then Richard did the visual effects, which is like Jerry turning into the vampire and the shadow on the wall when he dives off the balcony. It was just a great experience. And I was surrounded with a team of people that really supported me, including a, a very, very good line producer named Jerry Barowitz, who also is no longer with us. But I mean, I, I, I really got this is my first movie. That's called Dumb yeah. 
luck, just <laughs> dumb luck, because I wouldn't have known who to hire. Right. You know, I mean, I really had to be taken by the hand and led. And I had Jan Kieser as, as the DP on it. I mean, just all kinds of all kinds of wonderful things. So and then everybody was shocked at how good the movie was. And then it went out and it, it, did, it did great foreign, like in Europe and Japan. It did well here, but I mean, I think that, but it was like I said in the movie, that was at a moment in time when they were doing slashers and mm -hmm. slashers were, you know, were the dominant genre in horror. And so everybody, that's what I said in the movie. Everybody expects a, a guy running around with a butcher knife and a ski mask slashing up young virgins, you know? So nobody expect nobody, vampires? <laughs> Who's going to do a vampire movie? And they'd had a huge disaster with the musical of uh, Dracula, Robert Wise directing, I think Universal, but it had done no business and had been a huge Broadway success. Frank Langella, and then you came out with a with a spoof with with a comedy spoof with called Love at First Bite mm -hmm. with George Hamilton. And usually, what you see is that when you go into when they start to spoof the genre, you go into comedy. It means the genre is exhausted, and that's really where vampires were when I did Fright Night. And Fright Night was the beginning of the of the resuscitation of vampires. The yeah. Lost Boys, I think. I think Near Dark. Yeah, I mean, but I mean. All of a sudden, there was a whole new cycle. But before that, for about three years, there had been no vampire movies because nobody wanted to touch them. They thought they were the kiss of death, so to speak. So, Tom, you followed up Fright Night with Child's Play, knocking it out of the park again. So what was your initial inspiration for the Chucky character while you're writing the screenplay for that film? What that had was it had a, it had a concept, an idea that I thought was universal, which is all of us when we've been kids, at least me, looked around our room and thought to ourselves, what if our playthings come alive? And that was behind my interest in it. I was on it and I couldn't get a screenplay out of it working off the original screenplay by, by Mancini. Didn't have any, didn't have a bad guy. It was more like an episode of, uh, I don't know, The Twilight Zone. And everybody in town had turned it down, the screenplay. But I, it wasn't a screenplay that I that I wanted to make, but the idea I thought was terrific. And you'd had that moment in Poltergeist where mm -hmm. the clown comes out from under the bed and grabs the little boy by the leg and the entire audience screamed and went a hundred feet in the air. So I knew that there was all, I knew that there was something, if you took him and took a kid's playthings and brought him alive, you had something. There was also another movie, TV movie, believe it or not, by Dan Curtis called Trilogy of Terror. And they, they, they did a sequel to it. But anyway, the first Trilogy of Terror were three or four short shorts written by the genius Richard Matheson father of Richard Christian Mathis, and another terrific writer. Richard Sr. wrote a, a short story of the name that Dan Curtis put in that TV movie called Prey. And it was about a Zumi doll, about mm. 18 inches tall. It chases Karen Black around the apartment. And this is a couple of beats before cameras had anything like a Steadicam. They weren't invented yet. But what Dan Curtis did, and this, this is how it all connects. Dan Curtis had been the producer behind Dark Shadows, the soap opera in New York. Okay, and I, the, the, uh, I think it was on ABC. What he did was he took a 16 mil camera and he put it on roller skates, okay? And he would he would wave the, the doll in front, of the cam in front of the camera for a close-up. And then he would go to the doll's point of view running, which was really that 16 mil camera on roller skates. And it was right about 
about the level of, of, of Karen Black's ankles. And the Zumi doll was stabbing her with its spear. And it was absolutely terrifying. And I'd never seen anything visually like that. So I knew that visually that if I had Chucky chasing Karen and Andy or a little boy, especially at the end in the third act, that visually it would work even if the doll couldn't, I couldn't figure it this is before CGI. Even if the doll couldn't, even if I couldn't see the doll himself running, mm-hmm. if I just launched the doll and started going and then cut to the doll's point of view, I would have a very, very kinetic visual. And so I wrote, I wrote into Child's Play, I constructed it so it had those sequences. And if, if you look at it there, and you can look, you can see this in Psycho 2 also. I've always tried to put four to five visual set pieces in my screenplays, which is to say, Uh, ways of moving the action forward with a minimal amount of dialogue. Mm. And this comes after Mr. Hitchcock saying it's called moving pictures, not talking pictures. Once again, huge amount of luck. You know, if you think about it, you only see Brad Dourif once at the opening scene, but you know who's inside that doll. Yeah. And then you put Brad's voice behind it. And so you have a level of terror. And I mixed, I mixed humor again, humor and horror again. I think that, I think conceptually it was, it was just, it was just right. And that was at the moment in time when the hottest toy out there was the My Buddy doll. If you remember that, or if, if you were too young, I don't know. But the My Buddy doll was the first doll that had a computer chip in it. And so... What that computer chip did is you never knew what the damn doll was going to say. Before that, you know, you know, the doll would say, I want to go to sleep, lay me down, or I need to pee pee or something like that. But, but it was a set one or two lines. Right. When you put a computer chip in that damn doll, you didn't know. And that was that also gave me the, the license to make Chucky come alive that the audience would buy. You know, so so that but that's a, that's a matter of not. And oh, God, and that's the other thing I had seen before I took the job on. I'd seen uh, The Shining and The Shining was the was the first breakthrough use of the Steadicam. And you saw that with a little boy going down the corridors and the camera following him. Following him. That was mm-hmm. what they call low boy mode on the Steadicam. And so, you know, those, in other words, I've, it, there wasn't, the, the concept of, of a doll coming alive, I thought, for a little boy, who's the most vulnerable thing in the world, right. uh, I thought was, was was just great. When the doll is a, is a serial murderer, like the Lakeshore Strangler, that puts the little boy, you have a very, very sympathetic situation where you worry about the little boy and his mother is trying to save him. And his mother at first doesn't believe him like any nobody else believes him because it's so ridiculous. Your, your doll is alive. That's insane. And then once she realizes it and the doll attacks her, then she has to convince others and she gets Chris Sarandon, the cop, to, to believe her and help her out. Finally, there's a showdown in the in the apartment and hardly any of them survive. And it was a, it was a dynamite movie on a whole bunch of, of different levels as a thriller, as a, as a suspense piece as uh, as comedy, you know, because I, I gave I gave Chucky one liners, which were wicked. <laughs> you know the fu in the in the 
in the elevator has always gotten a huge laugh. The idea of the doll trying to stab him, trying to stab Chris under his under his butt when he's driving the car. And you'd have that knife come up between his legs, and every every man in the audience would lift off their chairs in the in the in the in the, in the, in the previous screenings. Anyway, that's me, Justin. I think it's about time. Is there, is there anything else I can ask you before I I take off? Yes, Tom. I was just going to mention. I know we have a very limited time together today, and I don't want to make you late for your appointment so i'll just give you the floor and just you could tell folks what you're working on what's in the pipeline i know you're working on the fright night novel anything else coming down the line fright night the the, the novel please the first novel sequel called fright night aftermath fright night 2 please when you see it out there on kindle or whatever take a look buy it and mm-hmm. keep having fun everybody and any everybody who's aspiring you know to to to, to write or, or or to make movies just keep doing it because there's no excuse today you can make a goddamn movie with your with your iphone you know it's not like when i was coming up and you had to have a three-ton camera and lights that would blow out that couldn't afford the electricity so in writing the great thing about writing is you're never out of work making a living at it's a different matter there's no excuse for not writing if you want to be a writer tell you all you know have hope keep on keep on working keep on trying because the other thing is every time you write you write a new story a new novel every time you go out and you make a short film or whatever you're learning and you're getting better and god bless everybody justin i thank you very much tom it's been a freaking pleasure talking to you man seriously same here you have okay everybody i'm gonna leave you know god bless (laughs) and be safe bye bye Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting, mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lane, inviting all you fans of Monsters, Madness, and Magic to check out my podcast, Rants from the Black Lodge. What are we all about? Well, let me lay some inside baseball on you. The first of each month, myself and the Rant Army dissect some of cinema's greatest horror and cult films with in-depth retrospectives. Then on the 15th of each month, we present something a little more lighthearted with a fun watch-along commentary for some of cult films' more underappreciated offerings. Rants from the Black Lodge can be found on all major platforms, so hop on over to your app of choice and give us a sub. Follow us on social media at Rants Black Lodge, and for the love of Cthulhu, hop over and check us out on our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. Oh yeah, and please continue to support all the great content by our friends at Monsters, Madness, and Magic.